Hello, everybody. Welcome and thanks for listening to this week's social action briefing uh, as we record on Wednesday night, March 30th. I am Craig Milch, joined by the award winning Professor Jessica Mitchell. Hello, Jess. Hey, Craig. <laughs> so we were just talking about uh, the picture that you took after you were honored <laughs> this Tuesday, which was yesterday in, in real lifetime. Was that for the same, uh, the same award that we previously announced on the podcast? It was, right? Yeah, it was for the SUNY Chancellor's Award. Yeah. My lovely face after being told to smile is just me in a nutshell (laughs) (laughs) yeah if you uh if you follow the chess on instagram you've seen the the picture (laughs) it was uh it was it was perfect um yeah so yeah um yeah so you got to miss uh presenting on the all day zoom that i attended yesterday so congratulations on getting to do that um and yeah, so let's uh, let's get to our podcast agenda here. The first item um, is that after more than a hundred years and two hundred attempts to pass, the Emmett Till Anti Lynching Act was signed Tuesday, which makes lynching a federal hate crime uh, punishable by up to thirty years in prison. Um, it's named after the fourteen-year-old boy who was kidnapped brutally beaten and shot by a mob of white men in Mississippi in 1955 before they threw him into a river. Um, and uh, what, 66 years later, uh, 67 years later, Too many. It, uh, this finally, finally passed. Um, although pr- there, the, there are many different names on previous iterations I don't know if uh, if it was a if there was a failed attempt at the Emmett Till anti-lynching act, but definitely others uh, for the last hundred years. So this act um, that was signed into law by President Biden allows um, an act to be prosecuted as a lynching when a person conspires to commit a hate crime that results in death, serious bodily injury, and other serious harms. Um, Cory Booker was uh, a leading proponent in the Senate for this. Um, He gave comments to Vox, uh, quote, between 1936 and 1938, the national headquarters of the NAACP hung a flag with the words, a man was lynched yesterday. Solemn reminders of the dark eddies of our nation's past. Although no legislation will reverse the pain and fear felt by those victims, their loved ones, and Black communities. This legislation is a necessary step America must take to heal from the racialized violence that has permeated its history. Um, so, I mean, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people's reaction, you know, to this is like, well, great, you know, you know, lynching is, is, uh, is finally a crime, you know, it, it's took way too long, it's symbolic. But, you know, symbols matter. Um, and, you know, the, you know, and also, you know, it's already illegal to kill people, you know, like murder is already illegal, so on and so forth. Um, 
But, you know, I think that quote sort of speaks um, to the significance. Also, a quote from Damon Hewitt, who is the president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law, um, also to Vox. He said, um, quote, one interesting thing about the Black experience when it comes to the justice system is it's not just about being the target of harassment and state violence. There's a desire to be protected and to be recognized as a full American, a full citizen, a full human. When people talk about Black Lives Matter, that's what it means. Uh, This legislation sends a signal that yes, the lives of Ahmaud Arbery and others lynched do matter, that the people who commit violence against them will be prosecuted under the full extent of the law. Um, And then he also spoke to sort of the significance of making lynching specifically um, a crime of its own. Um, He said, lynching for some people might feel like a word that is starting to lose its power because it doesn't feel real and present, but it is kidnapping or an attempt to kidnap. It is torture. It is the sexual abuse that sometimes happens when someone is kidnapped. It is murder. I think um, in this Vox article, they've said, you know, probably um, the the people who murdered Ahmaud Arbery would have been charged under this act. Uh, I think also potentially the police who, you could say, lynched Sandra Bland. Um, Another quote from Hewitt, whoever conspires to commit a hate crime offense that results in death or serious bodily injury, or that includes kidnapping or an attempt to kidnap, aggravate, oh wait, no, this is not a quote from you. This is a quote from the bill. I'll start over. Whoever whoever conspires to commit a hate crime offense that results in death or serious bodily injury, or that includes kidnapping or an attempt to kidnap, aggravated sexual abuse, or an attempt to commit aggravated sexual abuse, or an attempt to kill shall, uh, if death or serious bodily injury results from the offense, be imprisoned for not more than 30 years, find in accordance with this title or both. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, I would recommend anyone um, kind of, I would, well, for any issue, I recommend just typing in the issue and then Vox and getting their explainer. But, um, you know, for anyone interested in kind of learning more, that's, it was a good article and kind of explains the context um, for what, you know, the significance of something that, you know, seems or is very late uh, coming. Um, And something that happened too soon because it shouldn't have happened at all, uh, the don't say gay bill was uh, signed into law by uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida and uh, the person who seems to be next in line for the leader of the Republican Party. And just Um, a reminder that Floridians have the opportunity to vote him out of office this year, which seems the only logical conclusion when you're dealing with someone like him. Yeah. And he, is he, he's going to be running against the like agriculture, uh, like, someone with like an agriculture position, like the only like statewide Democrat, something like that. That's her name. I think there's a primary. Oh yeah, there is. Um, oh yeah, the so the Florida Agriculture Commissioner is Nikki Freed. Um, 
she's in there. Charlie Christ, who I just saw, uh, sent me a fundraising email, uh, is in there. Annette Tadeo, oh, who uh, who my friend retweets, so probably means he's helping and is a great candidate, is running. So yeah, there's, there is a primary, so we'll see. There's a, a, a big one. It's five, 10, 13 uh, declared candidates on Wikipedia alone. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of wild. The last time that a Democrat won the statewide governor's election was in 1990. So that was the last time they, the Democrats won a statewide governor election? Yeah. In Florida. In Florida, yeah. Who was it? Lawton Childs, who actually died in office, and then another individual took over um, for the last like month. I'm sorry, you know, this this person also, you know, he won again in 1994. Was Um, it Bill Nelson? The person who took over was Buddy McKay. Oh. Okay. Uh, he. Okay. Yeah. Bill Nelson ran in uh, 1990, but lost to, I guess, the gentleman you just referenced. Um, so yeah. So uh, this terrible governor signed this law. Um, and for any, you know, for all of our listeners, um, you know, we've kind of covered the substance of the bill before, but. There are sort of three uh, major sort of myths or or claim false claims that advocates for the bill try to make. Um, and Mark Joseph Stern in Slate kind of did a, did a great job of outlining all of them. Um, one is you know that oh it only applies to third graders and younger, which mm-hmm. if you read the bill, it's just not true because it says. Um, it says classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender may not occur in kindergarten through grade three. And then there's this, there's other word or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. And uh, just a little side note, there aren't any state standards anywhere yet. Um, so, you know, they can claim anything is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate. Everyone, yeah. in, almost everybody in high school is under 18. <laughs> and let's just be reminded that the teachers union in Florida is not as strong as the one in New York. So really, it's it's much easier, from my understanding, to fire a teacher in the state of Florida, meaning that they're not going to want to discuss anything ever if it puts their livelihood at risk and their ability to feed themselves and their families. Yeah. And that's another, another one of the false claims is, is, you know, that it won't chill free speech, but Mm -hmm. it will because it makes, it allows parents to sue, uh, you know, sue the school for anything. If they have concerns um, about, uh, about, you know, LGBTQ instruction, um, or, and they, and if there's, so they have to, 
the law requires the school districts um, to create a process for resolving any concerns about LGBTQ construction, LGBTQ instruction within seven calendar days. And if the concern is not resolved within 30 calendar days, the school district must explain why. And then a parent can always file a complaint if the concern is not resolved to their satisfaction. Um, and they can also sue the school district. And then if a court agrees that an instructor violated the law, you can issue an injun injunction, damages, attorney's fees to the parents. So, you know, these obviously um, teachers can, you know, if all this happens, it's very likely teachers getting fired. So, yeah, they're going to they're going to avoid it like like a third rail. Um, and then the other uh, the other claim is that, oh, it's just about it only applies to sex education. Um, but the bill bans, quote, classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity, you know, meaning, you know, it, if it touches on those topics, it doesn't say anything about instruction about the act of sex itself. Um, so, you know, it is as bad as people like us say, it's the long and short of it. And anyone that tries to tell you that it's not, um, you know, those three points of argument will most likely cover what they're, what they try to claim. That it's, you know, when they try to say that it's not as bad. Um, was there anything else, Jess, that you wanted to touch on? Um, just a reminder that no matter how many laws are signed into effect, there are going to be queer children, period, and adults, and constantly belittling people and making them feel like they are different does nothing to help the psychological health and well-being of those queer children and adults. Um, and this and really is just legislative gay bashing. Yeah, it doesn't stop them from existing. They will still exist and they will have worse lives because of this. Yeah, I mean, that's really like the most important takeaway from this is like you can try to legislate the queer out of society and it's just never going to happen. Um, you're just being an asshole for the sake of being an asshole and riling up a group of people who instead of being an asshole for them, you could maybe spend some time educating instead. Um, and politicians trying to pass these laws can, you know, spend some time trying to actually help people's lives. Um, but they're wasting time. And there is a, a breakdown that uh, Parker Malloy posted on Twitter. These are all examples from last week, the week uh, like that ended on, you know, on the Saturday, the 26th. Um, so from across the country. And uh, they, they kind of fell into, so I've sort of classified them four different ways. So, you know, there are a bunch of surgery or transition related care bans in Alabama. Um, any any uh, surgery on quote female genitalia for people under 19 would be considered female genital mutilation horrendous um in arizona there's a ban on any uh uh trans affirming care for minors in tennessee um this is now off the committee calendar so it might 
have gone away, but um, it was that all trans-affirming medical care for minors was banned and any insurance company covering any uh, any age uh, tra- for trans-affirming care would lose state funds. Again, this was, seems to be off the committee calendar, but was uh, attempted and maybe attempted again. Um, and in the area of education, there were attempts in Arizona um, to releasing records to parents, um, requiring permission to teach subjects uh, about sex, sexuality, or gender. Um, in Louisiana, there's basically a don't say trans bill, which is just you know very similar to the Florida don't say gay bill. Um, in Tennessee, there's a bill that requires teachers to dead name and misgender students. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it comes to youth participation in sports, there are bills in Arizona, Indiana, Illinois, Kansas, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Utah. Um, Utah is notable in that the Republican governor vetoed the bill and sent out a letter that um, was that received a lot of attention, um, you know, at least on Twitter for its humanity. Um, and it was really just that it, it was like the reason it was so notable was because a Republican governor sort of exhibited basic humanity when explaining his veto. Um, did you see the letter? I didn't actually read the letter. It's been a really long week. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, I'd I also feel your, your as though, on. like, I, I just, I, you know, I feel like it's great, but a great time to send that letter would have been before the legislation actually passed the legislature. And I'm not meaning to like criticize just for the sake of criticizing. But what's driving me insane is what I said before of all you're doing is legislatively bashing different groups of people pretty much for like your own amusement and not even taking into consideration. And I mean, first and foremost, like this needs to stop, like these attacks on the trans community, on the queer community in general, like it all just needs to end. But you're you're legislating like the most ridiculous parts of it you know what are you gonna do when and not like entirely out of the question a 16 year old girl goes to get a nose job or a boob job or some like you're legislating away the ability to choose nicknames which cis folks have been doing their entire lives too like are you just like if someone wants to use a nickname, you're not allowed to anymore, or are you literally just targeting people who choose to completely change their name, which is a thing people do too. Some people go by their middle names. Like you're, you're picking these like really important parts of a trans person life, but like the most mundane parts of a cis person's life and legislating them out of like an available option so that you can psychologically beat the crap out of a group of people who are already vulnerable because the society treats them like shit on a regular basis. And it's not like Democrats really treat this group of people so much better, um, like for your own amusement. And it just, it's, it's so ridiculous that this stuff is going on, but like be an actual advocate, like say something before these bills 
even come to your freaking desk, that we're not going to stand up for this in whatever state that everybody, you don't, it's not a requirement that you have to be a cis straight person to choose what name you want to go by. That, that, that should never be a prerequisite to having people address you in the way that you choose to be addressed. And yeah. also this whole medical thing, like, first of all, and not every trans person is going to get any kind of surgical procedure. Like it's not, it's not a requirement. Why are you not also then legislating circumcisions? Like, why are you picking one group and saying that this is considered, you know, genital mutilation? Like it's, it's also genital mutilation to like cut a part of like a person's penis off, but like, we're not going to talk about that because there's religious connotations to that. Like, if you want to be consistent then be consistent on these issues. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that uh, Governor Cox pointed out in the letter is that I think there were there are four trans children participating in sports in the entire state of Utah. And one of them is a girl who were, which is, you know, girls, uh, trans girls competing with other girls. Yeah, it's, yeah. Right, exactly. it's the place where people bitch the most. You're never going to hear Republicans say anything about boys sports because they're just going to say that that's that's not important we're going to finally stick up for title nine and we're going to protect women's sports which is such a load of shit you did not give a crap about sports last week the news media is doing no better than republicans because they're covering a letter that was anonymously signed by 16 people saying that we don't want trans women in sports but not talking about the fact that hundreds of people have signed a letter saying that this is all bullshit stop complaining about it none of you actually give a shit about women's sports and stay out of it like that you're giving it equal weight, like 16 people to 300 and something people is not equal weight. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the fact that it's under the guise of caring about women's sports is also galling. You know, if, if you, I think it was, um, I think it was the, like the March Madness college basketball uh, tournament last year. It was either that or the Olympics, I forget, but there was uh, the difference in just the like training, like the equipment available for the men's athletes and the women's athletes at like, you know, what, you know, close to the highest level of competition was egregious. So just imagine, you know, like in, you know, middle schools, high schools around mm -hmm. the country, like they, there's no, like that's the things that you could actually do to show that you care about women's sports is just not, not done in the slightest. So no, just... you're not doing them. It's, it's just, it's not happening. And the things that we have seen in the last year around like the disparate treatment of women, but in particular women of color in sports. And now all of a sudden you want to get up on your high horse because there's one, you know, or, or, or I'm sure there's actually a few, but there's one prominent, you know, medal, potential medal winning, winning trans woman in the NCAA is just ridiculous. Like you don't give a shit about women's sports. Everything that has been said around this is just completely 
dehumanizing to a person that just wants to participate in sports and that's fine and I just like wish people would get off their high horses and go back to not giving a shit about sports in particular women's sports because it was a better world when you didn't care and you weren't like beating the crap out of this poor college student who just well, to be clear they still don't care about yeah. women's sports it's about attacking trans people so. well just stopping attention like yeah. i know you don't care Leave just stopping attention yeah. again because it was the world was a better place when you were not actually paying attention to what is going on in the world of women's sports. I just, yeah. I mean, the like the only reason I, you know, made it a point to just say that is because mm. I think it should be said a lot more because it's Republicans pretend to care about shit constantly. Mm. Everything they care about that isn't like, uh, like billionaires and corporations having their taxes cut and like controlling people's lives you know that they don't uh that like aren't their own lives you know that they don't agree with or they just don't like how somebody chooses to live those are the only things they care about they don't care about anything else like they don't they they don't care about uh you know email like you know email security um Mm -hmm. when hillary's emails was a whole big fucking deal uh you know then they get in the white house and everybody's using like whatsapp and and their personal cell phones and all that shit, whatever. And they don't care emails. about their personal emails. And they don't care about whatever's on Hunter Biden's laptop, which is making a comeback. There is, it's like. It's it, insane. <laughs> and it's just another reason also to vote DeSantis out after he signed that proclamation saying that like whoever came in second, you know, is the rightful winner, like just another reason to vote him out of office. He just, he is just a grandstanding piece of shit that really needs never be covered in the news again and exists to make people feel like shit about themselves. And he should, I don't know. Go move to another country. Become the dictator of a small island where no one lives so that he only has to listen to himself and none of us actually have to listen to him anymore. Um, People are disgusting. I think, yeah. I feel like he exists to accumulate power for power's sake. And he's decided that his best way to do that is is to play to the people that want to just harm other people's lives. Like that, that was what he figured out his lane was. And I think, I don't even believe that he cares about any of this shit. I think he might, he might just be a sociopath. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, I don't think, I don't think he's a true believer. I think he's an opportunist. Oh, and the work, the absolute worst kind. Yeah, no, he's an opportunist of like, it just literally, picking the most vulnerable population probably in the United States right now and saying, what can I do to make your life worse? <laughs> yeah, that'll make my fans happy. And this is this is the same person. <laughs> he, I mean, the first time I heard of him was his ad for governor, which is just mm-hmm. completely just supplicating to Trump. Like, having having his kid build a wall out of blocks and I, I forget what else but 
Um, yeah, it was just just ridiculous. Um, just over the top pandering to Trump, and it really worked out because he's he's the, he's second in every in every uh, like GOP primary poll for president. Um, it's really so frightening on so many levels. Yeah. Um, so I next topic uh, sort of sprinkled in some good news. Um, the so there is a. a uh, what was previously an anti-voter bill in Georgia was replaced by a pro-voter bill that expands time off to vote for early voting. Um, so what happened was there is a bill that passed the House that would have expanded the reach of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. You know, Georgia is like equivalent of FBI on a state level, um, expanded the GBI's uh, reach um, over election crimes. It would have limited private funding of elections. It would have empowered partisan poll watchers and established new requirements for tracking uh, absentee ballots as they were verified and counted. And then what happened was um, actual election workers got involved, said how terrible it was, how a lot of it was just security theater. It was going to make them lose all their workers, you know, just point out all the problems with it. Um, and then it, the Georgia Senate committee voted unanimously Tuesday to remove every contentious proposal from the bill. So they shrank it from 39 pages to two pages. Mm-hmm. Um, so leaving only a requirement that businesses give workers up to two hours off to vote either on election day or during three weeks of early voting um, under current law, workers are only entitled to time off uh, to vote on election day. So that's interesting. I'm interested in sort of hearing maybe more about this because it was a unanimous vote, meaning that Republicans were involved. Um, I wonder if they're starting to realize how bad voter suppression is for the brand, you know, after losing uh, the two Senate races in 2020. Um, Well, here's the thing. Voter suppression is going to affect members of your own party, too. And maybe that is the point that they finally realized that you're you're disenfranchising your own voters. You know, you're hurting yourself by making it harder to vote. The only way they're going to do anything about it, and this is true for Democrats and Republicans, is if they see a benefit in it for themselves. And maybe they realize that they finally went too far. And that the benefit they're getting is being outweighed by the negative aspects of it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the point that the election workers are all making was just that it was generally going to make elections a disaster, and that's just not good for anyone. Less about, um, you know, partisan advantage from from it, um, but whatever it was. Um, was a good outcome we'll see what happens when it goes so this is just the committee so then i think you know just assuming how legislatures tend to work i imagine the senate the full senate has to vote that has to go to the house and pass um although you know if the senate isn't willing to pass the shitty bill then that means the shitty bill is not passed so there's at least that for now anyway um 
And uh, yes, speaking of shitty bills, um, Vice had a report on one related to the filming of uh, police officers. So um, this is from the article. Over the last 25 years, the first, third, fifth, seventh, ninth, and 11th district U.S. Court of Appeals have all upheld filming the police as a constitutionally protected form of expression like photography as it promotes the public's right to access information about public officials. Um, So in February, an Arizona State Rep John Kavanaugh, uh, unsurprisingly a Republican, proposed a bill that would criminalize filming the police from closer than eight feet away Hmm. and require someone to get the officer's permission, even if they're on private property. Um, And even then an officer could still order that person to stop recording and leave the area. Um, So here's a quote from Kavanaugh. This is about preventing violence and misunderstandings, preventing the destruction of evidence and preventing police officers from harm. Sure it is. Um, Two other examples, as of last April, Oklahoma has an anti-doxing law to prevent an officer's personal information, which could include video badge numbers, patrol car license plates, and other identifiable information from being released to the public. Um, Florida's 2021 anti-riot law added cyber intimidation by publication as a punishable offense for anyone who publishes an officer's information online with the intent of harassing them. Florida State Rep Juan Fernandez Barkeen, the Republican author author of that bill, um, said that, quote, harass has a special definition that requires the person's actions to serve no legitimate purpose to violate the law. Uh, A person's threat or harassment must put the victim in reasonable fear of bodily harm, not just annoy the person. This statute is narrowly tailored to prevent individuals with bad motives from docking someone. So same idea as, you know, with like, don't say gay is, oh, yeah, no, it's this, it's, you know, it's very narrow. It it only applies to, you know, a certain situation. It's to protect people. But cops already arrest, beat, and pepper spray people who legally film them. Um, They play popular songs so that videos get taken down when uploaded and shine lights at filmers. So you know, this is without these types of bills being in place. Just imagine the behavior where, you know, they, they would always claim, you know, harassment or intimidation or whatever they'd have to do, whatever lie they'd have to tell to prevent people from exercising their First Amendment right to film cops. So obviously we don't want these bills. No, I mean... <laughs> If I just, it's just amazing to me that we have Republican governors who are so pro, you know, privacy and pro the cops invading your privacy. So the hypocrisy that exists in that already, but they want to start filming teachers in classrooms to make sure that, you know, they never say the word gay, even if it means happy in the context or whatever the case is, but they don't want you to be able to film the police. It's like, again, why 
are police such a protected class? Why do we not have to expect any kind of ethics or compassion or professionalism out of people that we arm and at this point arm almost to a military grade in most places uh and we just don't expect them to actually behave in like the manner in which you should but we are going to film teachers who are overeducated in most cases and underpaid but we can't trust them to do their jobs after their years of education and training and unpaid teaching time to prep them for the world that they live in. We stick cops in maybe a six month training. Some places it's as little as six weeks have zero expectation for any kind of educational or training experience prior to that police training. And they get to do whatever they want but we need to film teachers in a classroom. Yeah. Um, and I think in the article, some police person was making the argument that, you know, if there's a video, there's already identifying information. We don't need badge numbers. Um, and I guess the, I guess what their fear is, is that, um, you know, that it would lead to harassment when, you know, these videos got posted or whatever, but. I'm sorry, but my uh, name, address are all on the internet because I am a licensed social worker. They did finally, like last year, take my full address off the internet. So it only says the town that I live in, but consider, well, really not the town, it's the hamlet that I live in. But considering the fact that the hamlet that I live in is really tiny, it really actually wouldn't be that hard to find me here. Um, but yeah, just because I'm a social worker, why isn't the badge number and the name and the address of every police officer listed? Why again, yeah. after all of the, because it's not just me, it's it's social workers and licensed mental health professionals and doctors and nurses and creative art therapists and lawyers and, and all of these different professions are listed on the Office of Professions on the internet, lawyers actually have their own website. Everybody else is on another one. I'm not sure why, but all of our information is put out there after years of education and training and continuing education that we all have to do. And we finally sit down for a licensing exam and then all of our personal information gets splattered all over the place. And it's, you know, I mean, it's a different profession than police, but as a therapist, if you are a therapist or as a doctor, you could just as easily piss someone off that they could come find you. Why is it that police are this separate, again, protected category? We're not going to put any of their information out there, but all of the rest of us have to do it. The background checks we have to go through, all of this stuff, and it's just a free-for-all. And why? It's to shield them from accountability. They want police completely shielded from any sort of accountability and you know the last you know like filming filming them is like the only thing that we have really that's the only time that you know um, that's almost practically the only time that there's any sort of accountability or consequences for officers that uh, egregiously violate people's civil and human rights and you know if if there was 
if there was some type of system of accountability that actually functioned, then, you know, they wouldn't have to worry about, you know, people's badge numbers getting, you know, getting posted online because people, because cops would behave better. And, you know, uh, so, you know, that's, it's just reaping what you sow. Like you can't, you can't stop people from filming you when you're committing crimes. I'm sorry. Also, let's just add to the list of things that's going to annoy me tonight is that all of these professions, in addition to all of the education and training and license exams and fees that we had to pay and all of this stuff, we also have to go through background checks and additional trainings. And it just like none of this is really like put on police officers or the fire department um and there was something else I was going to add to that list but my brain is just so angry right now that I can't think of it I should write these things down that's fair um, oh oh my god okay I figured out what it was <laughs> my brain is just very tired and very frustrated and I need for it to be the summer in addition to all of this stuff we also have to pay for malpractice insurance yeah. So, I, you know, again, I just, I don't understand why after all of the stuff that we have to go through, we have to forfeit part of our salaries every year to pay for stuff in case people sue us, which, you know, for most of these professions is just freely allowed in the state of New York. And, you know, it's like damn near impossible to sue a police officer. Yeah, I think, um, I think that was a, that's been like a proposed um, reform is to have, uh, you know, these sort of like civil rights claims paid out through insurance rather than, uh, yeah, I just kind of Googled in the first, the first result is uh, from Brookings, Rashawn Ray at Brookings Institute. Who I know I've I've definitely cited in uh, coursework, so maybe I read this already. But why police department insurances are the key to progress on police reform. So you know it has to do, you know, with disincentivizing, uh, you know, the shitty behavior by tying to insurance rather than just taxpayer money paying it off. So it's you know taxpayers get their rights violated. And then taxpayers pay, um, you know, uh, for, you know, for the misconduct. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like to be very, just like abundantly clear on this, this insurance should have to be paid for by the individual officers. Like all of the rest of us have to do when we enter a profession. And I think that in the same way, I constantly bitch about the fact that we need to license, register, and share handguns for every Joe Schmo walking down the street who has one, we need to, because we need to treat guns like we treat other deadly weapons, i.e. vehicles, um, we need to start treating police officers like they are a profession. You know, yes, the police really started as a gang of white people, usually slave trappers. Um, but if they are going to expect to be paid, compensated, and treated like a profession, they should have to start 
acting like one and take the steps that all of the rest of us have to take to enter a profession and maintain our position in it. Yeah. Um, And I think this proposal has the departments paying for it or paying for the insurance. Um, I don't know if it's individual, doesn't seem like actually individual officers, but right now, you know, it doesn't affect the police at all. It's just taxpayers. So, um, yeah, well, you know what? I would really like every job I have to pay for my social renewal, <laughs> my insurance, my notary renewals up every four years, um, all that fun stuff. Like, I don't understand, again, why, if you want to be a profession, you expect to be treated <laughs> I, I don't know, like a street gang. I mean, this is r- like a little ridiculous. If there's going to be all of these privileges given to you, then we need to also expect you to shoulder some of the burden and responsibility as well. Yeah. Um, and there's just resistance at every single turn every time. Um, And I know that I'm a college professor and I put way too much stake in the education of this country and people, but that is how I've always been. And this has predated my teaching. I really think that if we are going to continue to have a police force in this country, which realistically, I don't think I'm going to see the death of this profession in my lifetime, that we should have associate degree programs at every community college across this country that is specifically tailored for community policing and that people should be required to go to that program for two years and pay tuition like all of the rest of us do to enter our professions. And you shouldn't be allowed to be a police officer and there should be mental health training and community organizing training and all of these different things before you are ever given any kind of like actual police training, because without this foundation and and police training should be completely reformed, but without this foundation, why are we giving you free access to a weapon and the ability to just basically get away with whatever it is you do for the rest of your life. There should be. Well, that's yeah. Well, that that's, I mean, that sounds all great, but the, the, that, that last part is the biggest problem that needs to be solved is letting, letting them get away with whatever they want for the rest of their life. There needs to be. Honestly, I think even before that, but like, before, like, yes, like you should not be allowed to get away with anything for the rest of your life simply because you are a police <laughs> officer. But I think the bigger problem is actually just taking guns away from cops. Like, I, like to me, that just seems like a no brainer. If you don't want to do this job without a weapon, then you don't want to do this job. And there are many other countries, including the UK, where police are not armed um yeah. even uh, like the craziest part to me is like you hear all this stuff and you know it's not all true and it's just america being on its high horse of our own perfectionism that doesn't actually exist i i went to cuba military like people in military uniforms like mil- members of the military and police the entire time that i was there on the two occasions that i went totaling about 20 something days, I saw one police officer with a weapon 
and I am not good at guessing people's ages, but I would venture to guess that this person was in their early to mid twenties. It was a black woman standing there with two other police officers that didn't have guns. I'm not particularly sure why this one person did. And I didn't really want to ask. Um, and that's it. The whole time I was there, the police, like this idea that we are more free in America is bullshit in and of itself. But this idea that we're more free because of the police presence is complete and total crap. And I know that there's a lot of things wrong with the Cuban government, just as there are a lot of things wrong with every government and they don't do great things to protesters. But in a day-to-day life of just living there and walking around the many different cities that I walked around, but this one time that I actually saw someone with a gun, I was in Havana. You don't feel the presence of police or military or the government really. In a socialist country, you don't feel the presence of government in the same way that you do in the United States every single day. And that's my rant for today. (laughs) <laughs> so um one of the people that we're talking that have said something recently about not being too close uh to police officers when you film them was eric adams um and the uh so the state budget is due friday and it sounds like kathy Hochul, the governor um is looking to um to sort of adopt a lot of the policies that Adams has been advocating for, which deals with like, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, the rollbacks on bail reform. Um, I think an increase in the ability to try minors. Um, We had it sort of towards the end. Yeah, so she wants to roll back bail reform, discovery form, and raise the age, um, which we sort of touched on last week. And then um, additionally, um, so in the state budget uh, that's due Friday, New York is slated to quietly expand police surveillance Mm -hmm. with an entire new network of intelligence hubs, new phone hacking tech, um, and more funding to Intel networks and a fusion center. This is like, this is like post 9-11 security state stuff. Um, this came from uh, Chris uh, Gillardi at uh, New York NYS Focus. Um, so, and it also, uh, the plan also calls for increased street policing, $13.1 million to expand deployment of the state police's community stabilization units, uh, which partners with local police, quote, to combat community-specific crime problems, end quote, as well as uh, added funds to for local police departments that adopt aggressive uh, problem-oriented policing tactics like hotspot policing and focused deterrence. Um, so this is all happening with little contention. Um, there are there are housing advocates that are urging Hochul to include hotel conversions, um, as you know, as Eric Adams has begun to dismantle uh, encampments around the city for the uh, unhoused. Um, so, 
This is uh, an AM New York article that features uh, advocate Shams DeBaron, who is also known as the homeless hero. Um, he, in his, he had some statements quoted in there. Um, Congregate settings aren't a viable solution. We need to develop more private safe haven beds, stabilization beds, and housing opportunities with wraparound services. That's why I'm calling on the governor and state legislature to encourage hotel conversions and include the housing access voucher program in the final budget. I'm urging you all to include hotel conversions in the 2023 budget. Governor Hochul included language in a proposed 2023 executive budget that would make it possible for hotels to be converted to permanent housing, but that language was not included in the state or assembly versions of the budget. It should be added back so that any class B hotel, which is places of more than 50 rooms in New York City can be converted into permanent residences. Right now, there are 18,000 empty hotel rooms in New York. Mm -hmm. And I think that includes like hotels that are closed, um, that aren't operating. Hotels, malls, like I understand that a a congregate care facility where people are like, bunk, you know, bunk bedding it or like sharing rooms is not a good idea, but I love the idea of converting hotels into permanent places that people can live or converting unused malls into permanent places that people can live because of the social aspect of it too. If there are other people there, it's, it's like a built-in social support system where you're not just getting dumped in a house in the middle of suburban sprawl and maybe you don't drive or maybe you don't have access to a car and you're kind of just stuck where you are. Whereas if you're converting unused mall space, you have a food court there that you could easily convert into you know, a group style buffet, cafeteria situation, whatever it is. Um, And it's really important to remember too, that it shouldn't be, we're going to convert this hotel into housing for, you know, uh, men and this hotel into housing for people with HIV and AIDS and this into mental health. Like it should all be mixed use housing. And if it's, something that's like a mall conversion and you're turning it into like actual one bedroom or studio apartments, like some of it should be workforce housing and some of it should be low income housing and, you know, start realizing that people living together is way healthier than people living apart. But living together with their own spaces rather than like a shelter. Yeah. yeah, with their own space. Like if, if this is like, a, you know, like a situation where you're creating one bedroom and studio apartments, you know, people living together in their own spaces, you know, I don't, I, I, the suburbs were never in my mind supposed to be a place for people to go to actually live. They were a place for people to go who had money to vacation. People are supposed to live around other people and interact with other humans and have, you know, social support in that way. Um, it's just wild to me the way that we have set up our society and chosen to live because it doesn't seem healthy or conducive to actual 
decent mental health outcomes. Uh, but having, you know, different groups of people, not just, you know, siloing people off and saying, oh, I'm sorry, you have a mental health diagnosis, you need to live here. You, you know, live with substance use disorder, you need to live here is ridiculous to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that it was a part of the budget and then it wasn't. The, the whole budget process, at least this time, is very sort of secretive. Um, is no, that how it usually actually, goes? This is actually more open than it normally is. Usually, oh. yeah, it's, I mean, okay, I, that is just a judgment call. It's not a matter of fact, but Typically, New York State has been known as the state where all decisions are made, you know, in a room. Typically, in the past, it has always been, you know, three white men. And it was the Senate Majority Leader, the Speaker of the Assembly, and the Governor who, like, sat in a room and really hashed out what was going to happen. You know, it's not... (laughs) This isn't a great answer, but it's not necessarily a requirement that people explain why things came in and out. It would be nice if they did it. Uh, But this budget process has been honestly more open than it usually is. It had been getting better even under Cuomo, but it still wasn't and it still isn't great. Yeah, I mean, I think all the stuff about like the rollback of bail reform and and all that was like a leak. And then Hoka was asked about it and said that, you know, she wasn't going to discuss it in public. Um, and then, you know, she's getting criticism for being like Cuomo in that respect. Um, but I guess, yeah, it makes sense that it's, even though it seems to me like, you know, secretive and shady, um, that it could still be less secretive and shady than it's been in the past. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's like marginally better than it used to be. Yeah, and I think I think none of the governor, speaker, or leader of the Senate are white men at this point either. So there's no. that. Yeah, there, I mean, there's been, you know, there's been changes. It doesn't mean that it's perfect. And like, look, to be honest with you, I just talked about this on the podcast this morning. Um, we live in a representative democracy. We do not live in a direct democracy or dictatorship. So we elect these people under the expectation that they are going to represent us in the best way possible. Does that happen? Obviously not, but I'm saying that's what's supposed to happen. You cannot in a, especially in a place as big as New York, you cannot expect that everybody's input is going to be taken and acted upon because there are obviously varying opinions, even among people who fundamentally agree with each other. So it is a really difficult process. And sometimes working that process out in daylight is not the best process. I would expect that after the decisions were made, that people would answer as to why they were made the way that they were. Um, but as we can see, even just using COVID as an example, because COVID is a good example for anything, everything, um, 
you could see what happened when, you know, decisions were made in the open or not even decisions, but just information was available immediately. We went through many cycles of, you know, this is what the science says is the right thing to do right now. And people don't understand that, you know, because they don't understand why it's changing. They think science is a fact and it stays the same without understanding the scientific process of trial and error. So it's, you know, kind of similar to the budget process of, we're going to see what we can do with this, but making comments on it as we go along and as things are changing, then it turns into, well, you said this last week, why isn't this the case anymore? Um, so I feel like from an elected position, it probably is better to just hash it out and then present it to the public because you will not be accused of being a flip-flopper. And saying it's the greatest way of doing it. I'm just saying I do sort of understand. So, and it's the finalized version that's due Friday? Yeah, the budget is due in New York on, you know, it's gotta be done by the end of March. Yeah, so so by next week, uh, I guess we'll know what's in there. Um, And assuming that information is made available, we will talk about it. but until then, uh, I'll just say thank you for listening. Thanks, Jess, for joining me as always. And of course, thank you to Aridian Falcone for inspiring the podcast and our logo. And to my friend Vinny Alfano over at Anonymous Hair Salon in Soho for our theme song that we got uh, complimented on by a classmate, Randy, who may be joining the podcast at some point. Um, but yes, until until next week, 